This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this presentation, Dr. Craig joins Robbie Zacharias answering questions about Christianity and the existence of God. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Let me take you through four stages that an average human being will live through to show you how this concept of meaning emerges in the Christian life. When you are a child, when you were a child, what is it that brings a little child meaning? Because a child lives with a world of enchantment, a world of wonder, a world of enthrallment, a world that wows that little one. You can take a one-year-old and put that one-year-old on your lap and just press a button and a ping sound comes out of it and the child's eyes just get wide. It is getting involved with a new world and the enthrallment is absolutely awesome to that little one. I remember talking to a very well-known Christian musician, Steve Green, and he had just become a new father. And about a year after that, when I met him, I said, what's so exciting about being a new dad? He said, watching the wow expression on my child's face whenever anything new is introduced. G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis were masters at understanding the world of imagination in the life of a child. And Chesterton is the one who said that he came to more of his conclusions in life from observing children than from any volume in philosophy he had ever read. And in his book, Orthodoxy, he has an extraordinary chapter called The Ethics of Elfland. If you haven't read that book, uh, Orthodoxy, I urge you to pick it up. I think it's one of the greatest pieces of work ever written, The Ethics of Elfland. And in that, he makes this comment. He said, have you ever seen when you're reading a fairy story to a child, that at some point you may read something like this. You may say, and the fairy godmother said to so-and-so, if you do not come back by 12 o'clock, you will become a pumpkin. He says, do you notice two things in every fairy story? Number one, there's always a condition. If you do not come by such and such, you will become a such and such. But have you noticed the child never says to the fairy godmother, how come? And Chesterton says the reason is if you say to the fairy godmother, how come? The fairy godmother might well turn to you and say, if that's the way you want it, tell me how come there is a fairyland in the first place. That's the point I think God was making with Job. When Job was saying, only that which I can comprehensively understand in my mind will I fully accept. And God says, all right, Job, since you want that kind of comprehensive understanding, tell me where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Where were you when such and such happened? He nailed Job with 64 questions back to back to show him that the many wonderful concepts he had imbibed, he did not have a full and a comprehensive understanding of those. This sense of wonder in childhood is vital for that child's meaning and the sense of awe that will hold that young life. I was introduced to that with my little boy Nathan when he was fairly young. One day he was playing with a helium balloon in our living room and he would leave, leave that helium balloon and it would go up to the ceiling. He would jump up on the sofa, grab the string and pull it down. Get off the sofa, leave it again, watch it go to the ceiling, jump up on the sofa, grab the string and pull it down. I think it is Chesterton who said part of a child's infinity in capacity to enjoyment is reflected in its ability to enjoy the repetitive and the monotonous. You throw a child into the air, what does it say? 
Do it again, do it again. So let the balloon, it goes to the ceiling, jump on the sofa, grab the thread, bring it down. He did this a dozen times and then even his monotony was wearing thin. He decided to go outside and let it go. <laughs> and now it was gone. And all of a sudden, just complete despondency overcame him. And he was crying his heart out when he saw me coming out, watching that balloon way up there. As soon as I came out, he stopped and said, I know what, Daddy, just next time you're on the plane, you can bring it back for me. And the worst thing I could have told him was, they don't open the door when you're up there for me to reach out and bring it back. That world of wonder, we all go through that. But that's when you come to a sudden stop at a certain stage and you know the fairy stories are just that. They are merely fantastic. When you come into your youth, there is a second component that you look for and that is the component of truth. How do I know what is true? How do I put my life in trust of that which is true? I remember being at a court case in the Old Bailey where two young girls had charged an older man with having raped them. And we were sitting there watching this in London, overwhelmed by the fact that this man had subjected these two girls, about 12 and 13, to that horrid experience. And as we listened to the testimony they were giving, and they weren't in the courtroom because they were minors, it was coming through the medium of television screens. But the man charged was sitting in the room. And then the person de defending the man stood up and he said to the two young women, he said, I have some questions and I only want one thing from you. Please believe me, I want the truth. Nothing more, nothing less. If what you're telling us is the truth, we want to charge this man. But if what you're telling us is a lie, then we want to find that out also. Please tell us the truth when we ask you. If you don't understand the questions, we will explain them to you. And patiently he began to probe one question after another. And all of a sudden he threw one little question in. And he said this, he said, isn't it true that you told your parents about two months after you actually said this incident happened? And the two girls sort of struggled with that and said, yes, that is correct. And then he said, tell us, on the day that you told your parents, weren't you in a bus earlier on in the afternoon? And this man came over to where you were seated. He saw you up to a certain mischief that he challenged you with and told you he was coming to your home that evening to tell your parents that he saw what you were doing that afternoon. Did that happen that day? There was silence. And one of the young girls said, I can't remember. And the other one just refused to answer. Question after question came. And I had my daughter with me. She was not even in high school then. And the reason we were there was because she was interested in studying law. And my colleague who's here with me tonight was with us in that courtroom. And about five of us walked out of there. I have never felt so frustrated in my life. Because we walked out of there in the middle when the testimony was getting more and more graphic. And the question in our mind was, what is the truth here? Because if those two girls were telling the truth, there was a wretched individual sitting there who needed to be dealt with. But if he was being framed for some other reason, there was an indelible mark going to be put on that individual's life. And the horrible thing you felt was, how will I ever know what happened here? 
Ladies and gentlemen, if in one incident like that in life it is important to know the truth, how much more it is for life itself. And what is it that brings life meaning? We can go through the days of infancy with wonder, but then we've got to find out what is true. Who made me? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? Thirdly, it is the sense of love and belongingness. Wonder, truth, love, and belongingness. Let me just say this, that that sense of belongingness is so real, and that longing for belongingness is a hunger imprinted upon our hearts. If there was anything the story of Princess Diana told this world, it was the longing for acceptance and the longing to find love. And if it was anything Mother Teresa's life told us, it was the love and acceptance she gave to the most destitutes on the streets and gave them a sense of belongingness. We hunger for this. Even Bertrand Russell said, out of the three great longings in his life, this one was the most unfulfilled, the longing for love and the longing to belong. So what brings life meaning? The three components I've given to you, wonder, truth, love, and lastly, security when we get to old age. In our infancy, the sense of wonder. In our youth, the understanding of truth. In our middle years, the experience of love. And in our old age, the confidence of security. And we have found out through life that many of the things we give to each other as security do not really add up to much. We want a beyond something that goes beyond these three score years and ten. I, my time is up, and so let me just summarize it with this simple little illustration that I borrow from Chesterton again. And I apply it in my own life. When my little children were three of my children, who are now 22, 19, and 16, if I were to take you to their lives, say at the age of seven, four, and one, and I were to tell them the same fairy story, if I were to tell the seven-year-old something like this, little Tommy got up and walked up to the door, and Tommy opened the door, and a lion jumped in front of Tommy, all of a sudden my seven-year-old's eyes would have become wide. Had I told my four-year-old, Naomi, say, Nimi, Tommy walked up to the door, and Tommy opened the door, Nimi's eyes would have become wide. If I had looked at Nathan at age one, and said, Nate, little Tommy got up and walked up to the door. Nathan's eyes would have become wide. What's the difference? At age seven, Sarah needed the dragon or the lion to jump up there. At age four, it was all you needed, the suspense, to open the door and wonder what was going to jump up in front of you. At age one, it's a pretty big deal just to walk up to the door. <laughs> the older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder, and only God is big enough to fill it. Meaning comes from wonder, truth, love, and security. And God, who's the perpetual novelty, who gave us a son, who's the way, the truth, and the life, who loved you and gave himself for you on the cross, and says, because I live, you shall live also. That's when meaning comes in, when these four components deal with the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, and bring that coherence into your life. Thank you. As I explained to the folks to whom I spoke last night, I'm still recovering from about with the flu, and so my voice is somewhat hoarse, and I, I just beg you to uh, give me your indulgence. I think I can be understood by the use of this microphone tonight, however. 
I want to thank uh, the Veritas Forum for allowing me also to participate in the forum. It's been a delight to be here and especially a privilege to share the platform with Ravi tonight. As someone raised in a non-Christian home, I struggled as a teenager with the issue of meaning to life. And it seemed to me that there are two fundamental prerequisites if life is to have meaning. And those two prerequisites are God and immortality. If there is no God and immortality, then it seems to me that life ultimately becomes absurd. Because then life ends simply in death, and there is no transcendent to infuse meaning into the lives that we do have. It seems to me that life ultimately becomes without significance, without value, and without purpose. I remember the first time that my father told me as a little boy that someday I was going to die. Somehow the thought had just never occurred to me. But when he told me that, it filled me with terrible sadness and horror, and I just cried and cried and cried. He tried to comfort me by saying that my death was a long way off, but somehow that didn't seem to matter. Uh, in time, of course, I grew used to the fact and managed to live with it. But reading later in life the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, I think I realized that the child's insight was the correct one. Sartre said whether it's a few hours or a few years makes no difference once you have lost eternity. And I think that's very true. If all we do is live to die, then ultimately our lives have no more significance than a barnyard of pigs or a swarm of mosquitoes. If we live merely to die, then our lives ultimately have no purpose. All of the achievements of mankind, all of the sacrifices, all of the great things are ultimately buried in the midst of a universe in ruins. It ultimately makes no difference. Our lives are ultimately without value. Why live? as a Mother Teresa rather than as a Stalin or as a Hitler. Ultimately, everyone's fate is the same, and the contributions that good people make ultimately make no difference to the fate of the universe. But it's not just immortality that we need, I think, if our lives would be significant. It's also God. Because if we have mere immortality but without God, there is no one to say what is the absolute standard of right and wrong, of good and evil. We would still be purposeless byproducts of the matter plus time plus chance with no reason for living. There still wouldn't be any ultimate significance to our lives just in virtue of its having infinite duration. But if God exists, then as in the Christian world and life view, our lives here on earth are infused with an eternal significance because our end is not death. It is eternal life to know God and enjoy Him forever. And there is an absolute standard of right and wrong in God himself and his nature. And that makes the moral choices that we make in this life tremendously significant. And so basically I found in the Christian world and life view those necessary prerequisites for meaning to life, namely God and immortality. Our second question, which will be initially addressed by Dr. Craig, is the question of the existence of God. How do we know that God exists? What reasons or evidence or arguments could a person put forward to make belief in God rational? Back in the 1960s, the Death of God movement was current in American theology. On April 8th of 1966, Time magazine carried one of its most famous cover stories in which the cover was completely black except for three words in red letters, Is God Dead? 
and it described in that article the movement among American theologians to declare the death of God. Just a few short years after that Death of God issue, Time magazine in 1967 carried another red on black cover story. Only this time the question read, is God coming back to life? And it described the movement among contemporary American philosophers and intellectuals to rediscover the vitality of God. And indeed, I believe that in my own discipline of philosophy, there's been within this last half century literally a revolution in this respect. Several decades ago, it was widely believed among philosophers that talk about God was literally meaningless, just gibberish. Uh, and yet today, I think hardly any philosopher would defend such a point of view today. Instead, many of America's finest philosophers at our best universities are outspoken philosophers uh, are rather outspoken Christians who are using philosophical argumentation in defense of a theistic worldview. Alvin Plantinga, who is certainly one of the greatest Christian philosophers writing today, gave a lecture a couple of years ago entitled Two Dozen or So Arguments for the Existence of God. And it was a dazzling lecture in which Plantinga carried his audience through more than two dozen different arguments that he believed makes it more plausible to believe that God exists than that atheism is true. Let me just share a couple of considerations with you this evening why I believe that on balance the evidence makes it more plausible that God exists than that he does not. Number one, I think that God makes sense of the origin of the universe. Have you ever looked out at the sky at night at the stars and asked yourself, where did it all come from? Why does anything at all exist? Why does matter and energy or space and time exist instead of just nothing? Well, typically atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused and that's all. But I think that discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics during this century have rendered that view less plausible. According to the best astrophysical evidence, the universe is not eternal, but began to exist in a cataclysmic explosion called the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. Not only were all matter and energy, but physical space and time themselves were created in that event. And therefore, the Big Bang marks the creation of the universe out of nothing. There was literally nothing prior to that event. Now that raises a profound metaphysical question. How can something come into existence out of nothing? Surely that is impossible. Out of nothing, nothing comes. That points to the existence of a transcendent cause beyond the universe, which brought the universe into being. And by the very nature of the case, this cause would have to be a being which transcends time and space, is therefore immaterial and changeless and enormously powerful. Already some of the central attributes of what the theist means by God. Moreover, I would argue, number two, that God makes sense out of the complex order in the universe. Scientists have been stunned by the discovery in the last 30 to 40 years that the initial conditions of the universe were fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a complexity and delicacy that literally defies human comprehension. 
It's been shown that there are about 50 constants and physical quantities simply given in the Big Bang themselves. That if they were altered even to one part in a hundred million, 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 the universe would not have permitted the existence of life. And it's not just one of these or each one of these that needs to be fine-tuned, but the ratios between them need to be fine-tuned. The ratio between the weak force and the gravitational force has to be at just a certain proportion in comparison to the ratio of the mass of the neutron to the electron, for example. And the odds against a life-permitting universe are literally incomprehensible. It seems to me that it makes far more sense to say that the universe is therefore the result of intelligent design. As Fred Hoyle, the Cambridge astronomer, says, a common-sense approach to this would be to say that some super-intellect has monkeyed with physics. In other words, we are not here by accident. We are here by design. And that means that this cause of the origin of the universe is not simply an impersonal cause or being, but rather a personal intelligent creator who brought the universe into existence. Thirdly, I think that God makes sense out of objective moral values in the world. If God does not exist, then it seems to me that objective moral values do not exist. By objective moral values, I mean moral values which are valid whether anybody believes in them or not. For example, if the Nazis had won World War II and either exterminated or brainwashed anybody who disagreed with them, anti-Semitism would still be objectively wrong, even if the Nazis had convinced everybody it was right. That's what I mean by objective values. And what I'm arguing is that if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Many theists and atheists alike agree on this point. The common evolutionary atheist will tell you that moral values are either just the byproducts of socio-biological evolution, the means by which the selfish gene propagates itself, or else they're simply expressions of personal taste, analogous to saying, I like broccoli, or I don't like the news. Similarly, someone will say, well, I like killing innocent people, or I don't like murder and rape. They're just expressions of personal preference. So that if God does not exist, I think it's plausible that there are no objective moral values, that these are just all subjective. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist of the last century who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the advent of nihilism, that is to say, the destruction of all meaning and value in life. And I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right. Now, we've got to be very careful here, though. I am not saying that you have to believe in God in order to live a good moral life. I'm not saying that at all. Nor am I saying that you have to believe in God in order to learn what good moral values are. I'm not arguing that either. Rather, what I am saying is that if there is no God, then there are no objective moral values. Moral values are just socio-biological byproducts of evolution or else expressions of personal taste. But it seems to me that there is simply no reason to deny that objective moral values do exist. I think deep down we all know that objective moral values exist. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Some things like torturing innocent people, child abuse, 
rape and murder are objectively wrong. Similarly, things like love, sacrifice, equality are objectively good. If an atheist says that he doesn't believe in God, well then ask him, do you really think that the Inquisition was a good thing? That it's morally neutral to persecute people because of their religious beliefs and, and burn them at the stake? Were the Crusades morally neutral to wage war upon other people because they're of a different religion? I think people will intuitively recognize if they're honest with you, yes, there are some things that are objectively right and objectively wrong. But if moral values cannot exist without God, and objective moral values do exist, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. Now those are just three reasons that I think it's plausible to believe that a personal intelligent creator who is the source of objective moral value exists. There are many more arguments that I could share, but my ten minutes are up. Perhaps in the question and answer time we could discuss some of these further. Thank you, Bill. I really have very little to add to that, and so I will add very little. But I just want to point out one very interesting facet of the very question, does God exist? I think it was Dr. E. Stanley Jones, the famed English missionary who came to India and lived there for most of his life, right into his 80s, and became a very personal friend of Mahatma Gandhi and won the respect of Gandhi, too. E. Stanley Jones made a very profound comment once. He said, people in the West spend their time wondering if there is a God, while the people in the East spend their time wondering which God to believe in. And I can just say this to you as one who has now lived in the West for a little over half of my life. I came to the West when I was 20, and America has now become home for me, where I, I treasure my residence, my my, this is my home, this is where my children are being raised. I just want to make a very definitive statement here. The future of this entire nation hangs upon how they answer this question. Does God really exist? Because what Bill has said, the, the extensions from what he said about particularly the moral nature, the moral struggles with which we all live, this nation right from its inception struggled with reconciling liberty with law. How does one establish law if there is no longer even natural law that is accepted as having a point of reference? And so the issue of a transcendent being from whom our moral order and our moral law comes, I think is a very significant one. Dallas Willard, professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California, gives a three-stage argument. I think it's a very well-stated one why he presents his reasons for the existence of God. Let me, existence of God, let me just read them for you as he's worded it, because if I were to start expanding on it, uh, it'll just take me more time. He gives you three stages. Stage number one, however concrete reality is sectioned, the result will be a state of affairs which owes its being to something other than itself. However concrete reality is sectioned, the result will be a state of affairs which owes its being to something other than itself. That means every physical state has some specific time preceding it. And there, whatever precedes that would have to be something that is non-physical if it is at the same time to be postulated as uncaused. Stage number two, this is an important step. He calls this not an argument from design, but an argument to design evolution, 
whether cosmic or biological, cannot, logically cannot be a theory of ultimate origins. Its operation presupposes the existence of certain entities with specific potential behaviors and an environment of some specific kind that operates upon those entities in some specifically ordered fashion. The type of structure found in evolution did not itself come through evolution. If you want to see an expansion of this, see Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, Professor of Biochemistry at uh, Lehigh University. I was with him two weekends ago, just a tremendous analysis as he is uh, dealing with biochemistry and molecular biology to talk about the irreducible complexity at which uh, evolution itself cannot explain. So stage number one, that no matter how you section physical concrete reality, it has something outside of itself that needs its explanation. Stage number two, that the very starting point evolution cannot explain because the specified complexity is there. Stage number three, the course of human events, historical, social, and individual. So when we are talking about God as he exists, we are looking at a non-material, an intelligent, and a personal first cause. And when you look at these three stages, I believe there's a very persuasive argument made for why the God that we talk about as non-material, personal, and intelligent, the God of the Bible, does exist. Thank you. The third question, which will be first addressed by Dr. Zacharias, is the problem of evil. How can the Christian God, who is claimed to be all-good and all-powerful, allow there to be evil in the world? And isn't there a contradiction implicit in claiming, on the one hand, that God is all-powerful and all-good, and on the other hand, claiming that evil exists? I think of all questions, this may be the most difficult one to deal with, and I have tried my best to approach this question from various angles, not just philosophical, which much has been written, but particularly the existential aspect of it. When you're looking for an answer to something as significant as this, let me just present to you three areas that I will look to in order to find satisfaction for myself. First, I stated these this afternoon, you're looking for logical consistency in whatever is presented. You're looking for empirical relevance here. You're looking for uh, that which can be empirically tested. And certainly, you're looking for the existential relevance just as well. So that the logic of it, the empirical adequacy, and the experiential relevance, those three will be brought to bear upon the answer. Let me expand upon the question so that you can see its assumptions. It happened to me many years ago in the early years when I was beginning to do such things as trying to defend the Christian faith in particularly hostile environments. And I was at the University of Nottingham in England when a student did not wait for me to even finish my talk and he leaped out of his seat and he said, there cannot, there cannot be a God when there is so much of evil, so much of gratuitous evil. He was obviously agitated by it, and I understood how he felt. I remember walking through Auschwitz some years ago before the Cold War had thawed out, and I was asked to do some lectures in Warsaw and Poland, and my host, who was a medical doctor, asked me if I would like to go and visit Auschwitz before I left. I wasn't prepared for what I was going to see. 
I had seen Buchenwald in, in East Germany, but that was not a death camp, and it somehow did not stir up the same horror and the same unrest within you when you stood there. So I understood how this man felt. I understood fully the passion with which he felt it. There cannot be a God, he said, when there's so much evil, especially such gratuitous evil in this world. And I said, can we interact and can we do our best to talk about this without offending each other in the process, but dealing with this with importance because it is important to you, sir. It is important to me. I don't want to check my brains out at the door either. I want to have an answer to it just as well. I said, but help me understand where you're coming from. When you say there is such a thing as evil, aren't you assuming there is such a thing as good? He paused and he said, yes, I'm assuming that. I said, when you say there is such a thing as good, aren't you assuming there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil? If you remember the famous debate between the Jesuit philosopher uh, Frederick Copleston and Bertrand Russell, at one point Copleston had Russell pinned on this question. And he said, Mr. Russell, do you believe in right and wrong? Do you believe in good and bad? And Bertrand Russell said, yes, I do. He said, how do you differentiate between good and bad? And Russell said the same way I differentiate between yellow and blue. Copleston said, wait a minute, you differentiate between yellow and blue by seeing, don't you? He said, yes. How then do you differentiate between right and wrong, good and bad? Russell shrugged his shoulders and said, on the basis of feeling, what else? Now, you know, Copleston was a kind man and carried on the discussion, but somebody ought to have stopped and said, Mr. Russell, in some cultures they love their neighbors, in other cultures they eat them, both on the basis of feeling. Do you have any personal preference on the matter of feeling here? How can you decide such monumental issues of life on the basis of feeling? Whether something feels right or feels wrong. So here it is. When you say there's such a thing as evil, aren't you assuming that such a thing is good? Yes. When you say there's such a thing as good, aren't you assuming that such a thing is a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil? He says, I suppose so. I said, but when you assume there's such a thing as a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's whom you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there is no good. If there is no good, there is no evil. He paused and looked at me and said, what then am I asking you? <laughs> now, I knew what he was asking me. He knew what he was asking me. He was basically saying, Help me to make some sense out of this. Are you cheating me some way by this sleight of the hand logic that you have brought in here? No, I wasn't cheating him, but I was just trying to explain to him that the very framing of the question raises a philosophical dilemma for the questioner as much as it does for the one trying to answer it. Where do, how do we resolve this? So logically, the question only intensifies the dilemma because the questioner has to assume a capacity or a law by which to differentiate between good and evil. So this then moves us to the empirical adequacy part of it, and that is this. When we talk generally of the best of all possible worlds, philosophers have given us four possibilities. Would it not have been better for God to have created nothing rather than creating this kind of a world? No world at all. Number two, would it not have been better for God to have created a world where there was no such thing as good or evil, an amoral world? Number three, would it not have been better for God to have created a world where people would only choose good, a kind of a robotic world? Why did he create a world like this where there was a possibility of good and evil? As soon as you use the word better, 
for God to have created the first three. Once again, you're invoking a moral law and an ability to decide what better would have been. C.S. Lewis points this out constantly. The moment you use the word better, you're assuming a way to measure what would have been morally better or superior. So why then this world? I think in this empirical adequacy slant to the question, I want to make this simple comment. Love is known in our experience to be the greatest of all ethics. Love is the supreme ethic. I don't think it was accidental that when a somebody like Teresa was being buried in Calcutta, that Hindus, Muslim, Buddhist people from all over the world, including the atheist president of Albania, stood silently beside her corpse in recognition that a life had been beautifully lived and a life that had loved. It is the supreme ethic. So when they look at her will and look at the fact that nothing to her name, a life spent in love, the world of every perspective recognize the supremacy of love. Love is only possible where the opposite is possible to, to reject love and to choose something contrary to it. So in the best of all possible worlds, if love is a supreme ethic, this is the world that makes it possible. In the logical case, the question can become self-defeating. In the empirical adequacy, love is made possible. In the experiential relevance, think of it this way now. If I were to take a life, just whimsically, it would obviously be something evil for me to do it for the simple reason that I cannot restore that life. But if the author of life and the creator of life takes my life, has he really taken it when he also has the power to restore it to the very purpose for which this life was originally created, to enjoy that relationship with him and to glorify him? So take the standard example. Why, did a, why does a five-year-old suddenly die? How can the God of love and the God of goodness justify that? When that child loses that life, in the Christian frame of reference, that life is not lost to God. That life will spend eternity with God as that child is drawn back to God himself who made that child, made that little one. Now you've got the bereaving father or the bereaved mother, the surviving loved ones. God says he gives them strength, gives them sustenance, gives them peace through all of this struggle and through all of this turmoil. One of the best-known hymn writers, Annie Johnston Flint, wrote, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. This was not written by a successful Hollywood film actress. It was written by a woman who was orphaned very early in life. A woman who was crippled with rheumatoid arthritis and spent most of her life in bed. Had eight pillows cushioning her body from head to toe because her body was covered with sores for all those years. A woman who was incontinent who had lost control of her internal organs and a woman for whom cancer was sapping away her life. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. So not only is he able to restore the life that is lost, he's able to sustain the one in weakness and in deprivation. 
What about the skeptic who looks at the tragedy of that lost life and raises the question? It may be a strong reminder to the skeptic to awaken the moral reality of the nature of this universe and to help the skeptic understand that the very raising of the question reflects a moral law and a moral lawgiver so that all involved in witnessing this tragedy have some witness of God in the process of raising the question. The one who loses the life to have it restored. The one who is bereaved to have the sustenance and the one who asks the question to recognize that the question is only valid if God himself exists. Let me tie it together, which we are left with it is this, the fact of healing, fear evil, the face of evil, and the feeling of evil. We see this all around us. The fact of evil, the only way to justify it if there is an objective moral order. The face of evil, the accountability, the personal responsibility. God talks about this in his word. And the feeling of evil, the reason we react the way we do is because something within the heart says, this is wrong or this is painful or this is grievous. How does it fit into a scheme of coherence and morality? A classic example of this in two contrasting illustrations very quickly here in a moment or so. I remember speak doing a lectureship in Hong Kong on this subject. And a man who was a lover of Nietzsche and followed Nietzsche's writings stood up in the middle and said to me, life was meaningless. Life had no purpose. He did not think even evil had any valid point of reference. The world was just sort of spinning along a kind of a Sartrean type of a trustness. We were in there, empty bubbles floating on the sea of nothingness. No moral judgment was pertinent. After the talk was over and I'd responded to his question, I asked him to see me afterwards. He came to the platform and I was surrounded by a whole lot of people. I said, sir, I want to ask you a question. If I took a two-year-old child and put that child on this platform and took a sword and cut that child up ruthlessly to bits, would you think I have done something wrong? He paused and he said to me, I would not like it, would not enjoy it, but I can't really say you would have done something wrong. The people standing around were aghast. I said, my dear friend, even you, while denying the fact of evil and denying the face, the responsibility of evil, find it inescapable to run from the feeling of evil. Even you would not like it. You better find out why you don't, or you will live in a world of complete chaos and complete cruelty. The reality of evil points us to the existence of God and his answer on the cross. Thank you. There's so many things that one would like to say about this profound question. Let me just add a couple of points. I think that one of the reasons that we tend to find the problem of suffering and evil in the world so intractable is because we just sort of naturally assume that if God exists, then his purpose in life for us must be human happiness in this life, that God's purpose is to make us happy. And the suffering and the gratuitous pain in life don't seem to contribute to that end. But you see, on a Christian world and life view, that assumption is false. The purpose of life is not human happiness as such, but rather the knowledge of God, which in the end will lead to ultimate human fulfillment and happiness. And there are many evils and sufferings in this life which I think are utterly gratuitous with respect to producing human happiness, but which may not be gratuitous with respect to producing a deeper knowledge of God, either on the part of the sufferer or on the part of those around him. 
And I strongly suspect that it may well be the case that only in a world involving a great deal of gratuitous natural and moral evil that the maximum number of people would come freely to a knowledge of God and his salvation. And I say this not simply by faith, but really on the empirical basis of uh, the demographics of the world today. If you read around the world where the gospel is increasing and multiplying at its most rapid rates, there is almost a one-to-one -one correlation with countries where intense suffering is occurring and where the growth of the church is moribund and the church is flabby and the growth rates are flat is in the West where we are so comfortable and so content. But the countries like El Salvador, China, Ethiopia, countries in Africa where the gospel is growing at amazing rates, it is precisely those countries where intense moral and natural suffering has occurred. So I think that we constantly need to keep in mind that God's purposes in life are much broader than what is merely conducive to our happiness. His ultimate purposes are to establish the kingdom of God. And what we suffer should always be seen in light of that greater overarching purpose. And that leads me to a second comment that I want to make. that. Our suffering always needs to be seen, I believe, in light of the cross. Because God shows us in the cross that he is not a distant ground of being or an impersonal crater who coolly sits by and watches us suffer. When people ask, when they go through intense suffering, where is God? Then we ought to point them to the cross and say, there is God. God is a God who enters into our world of suffering and takes upon himself the unimaginable suffering of bearing the penalty of the sins of the whole world even though he was completely innocent if anyone could complain of the problem of innocent suffering it would have been Jesus of Nazareth and though he was innocent he took upon himself the death penalty of sin that you and I deserve and therefore seen in light of the cross the problem of evil takes on an entirely different perspective when we see his suffering we now realize that the problem is not how God can justify himself to us. The problem is how I, filled with wickedness and sin and morally guilty before God, can be justified before him. And I believe that when we look at the cross, we can say to ourselves as we go through times of suffering, if God would go to that extent, if his love would carry him to those depths for me, then surely out of my love for him, I can bear this burden that he's asked me to bear through this short life that I'm enduring now. And I believe that this can give us the grace and the strength to endure what God calls upon us to endure during this life. The resurrection of Jesus is one of those events that most folks would say you just either take by faith or not. You just believe in it or you don't. But it's not something to which rational inquiry and investigation would be relevant. But I spent two years in West Germany working under one of the leading scholars on the historicity of the resurrection. And I found that the historical grounds for believing that event are really quite good, indeed remarkably good. I've written three books on this subject. I've taught a 30-hour course on this, so obviously in 10 minutes I can only very briefly summarize some of what I found. It seems to me that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus can basically be grouped under four broad headings. Number one, that 
Jesus of Nazareth, after his crucifixion, was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in his personal tomb. This fact is highly significant because if the burial site of Jesus was known to both Jew and Christian alike, then when the disciples began to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem, the tomb must have been empty. It would have been impossible to proclaim the resurrection of a dead man in Jerusalem if everyone knew that the body still lay interred in the tomb in the hillside. And therefore, the burial story and its credibility is a very important facet of the evidence for the resurrection. Unfortunately for skeptical critics who deny the resurrection of Jesus, the burial story is one of the best established facts about Jesus. There are numerous reasons that have led scholars to accept the credibility of the burial account. For example, the burial is mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 in the old information that he hands on that goes right back to the earliest time after Jesus' crucifixion. It is independently verified in Mark's source material that he used in writing his gospel. So we have dual attestation of this event. The fact that Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus is highly probable in view of the fact that he is described as a member of the Sanhedrin, the very council that condemned Jesus. Given the resentment in early Christian circles toward the Jewish authorities for their condemnation of Jesus, it is highly unlikely that they would have invented a fictitious character like Joseph of Arimathea as a Sanhedrin member who did what was right by Jesus by giving him an honorable burial. Moreover, there are no other independent burial stories in existence. If the burial story were a legend, you would expect to find traces of competing burial legends. There is none. The only one we know of is the burial by Joseph of Arimathea. And thus John A.T. Robinson, the late New Testament critic at Cambridge University, has summarized it by saying that the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest and best established facts about the historical Jesus. Fact number two is that on the Sunday morning following his crucifixion, the tomb of Jesus was found empty by a group of his women followers. This fact is also agreed to by the majority of New Testament scholars today, whether conservative or mainstream or, or whatever, on the basis of evidence such as the following. First of all, the empty tomb story was probably also part of this early source material that Mark used and therefore goes right back to close after the events themselves and couldn't be a legendary byproduct that arose decades and decades later. Second, it's also implied by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 where he talks about the burial of Christ and then how Christ was raised. Thirdly, the fact that women discovered the tomb is very plausible in light of the fact that the testimony of women was regarded as worthless in first century Jewish culture. Women couldn't even serve as witnesses in a Jewish court of law because their testimony was regarded as having zero credibility. In light of that fact, any legendary story of the discovery of the empty tomb would have certainly made male disciples to have discovered the empty tomb. The fact that it is women who are the discoverers and chief witnesses to the empty tomb is best explained by the fact that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the tomb, and the Gospels faithfully record what was for them a very embarrassing and awkward fact. Fourth, the earliest Jewish polemic presupposed the empty tomb. 
when the disciples began to preach the resurrection of Jesus, what did the Jewish authorities say in response? Did they say these men are drunk with new wine or his body is still there on the hillside? No, they said the disciples came and stole away his body. Now think about that. The disciples came and stole away his body. The earliest Jewish polemic in response to the Christians itself presupposed that the body was missing, that the tomb was empty. And thus they involved themselves in a hopeless series of arguments trying to explain away the emptiness of the tomb by the theft hypothesis. And thus we have evidence from the very antagonists of the Christians themselves that the tomb was empty. For these and many other reasons, the majority of critics agree that the tomb of Jesus was in fact found empty. As Jakob Kramer, who is an Austrian specialist in the resurrection, has written, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number three is that on various occasions and under different circumstances, different individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. This fact has been firmly established on the basis of the list of eyewitnesses given by Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, where Paul is quoting an old tradition or information that had been handed on to him, which probably goes back to within the first five years after the crucifixion. And when you look at these appearances, they are remarkable. Jesus appeared not just once, but many times. Not just to one person, but to different persons. Not just to individuals, but to groups of people. Not just at one locale and one set of circumstances, but at various locales and under different circumstances. Not just to believers, but to unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Secondly, these appearance traditions are confirmed in the gospel accounts of the appearance stories so that again you have multiple attestation of these appearances and therefore even the most skeptical critics agree with this point for example Gerhard Ludemann who is a very skeptical radical critic from Göttingen University in Germany admits that it is historically certain this is a direct quotation it is historically certain that Peter and the other disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ finally fact number four is that the earliest disciples came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. I mean, think of the situation the disciples faced following the crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead, and Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. Secondly, according to Jewish Old Testamental law, anyone who was executed by crucifixion was thereby shown to be a heretic, a man literally under the curse of God. Thirdly, the Jewish belief had no expectation and hope of anyone's rising from the dead before the resurrection at the end of the world. And yet these earliest disciples indisputably came to believe sincerely that Jesus of Nazareth was risen from the dead and they were willing to go to their deaths for that belief. C.F.D. Mole, a Cambridge University scholar, has said that we have here a belief which literally nothing in terms of antecedent historical influences can account for apart from the resurrection itself. Now those four facts are broadly recognized by the majority of New Testament critics today. 
The only question is, how do you best explain them? And I would simply argue that the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, is the best explanation of those facts when you compare it to any other explanation that you can think of. Hallucinations, theft hypothesis, swoon theory, whatever. If you compare the historiographical criteria for the best explanation, like explanatory power, explanatory scope, plausibility, not being ad hoc, not contradicting accepted beliefs, and far exceeding its rival theories in meeting those first several conditions, I think you can show convincingly that the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, best meets those criteria for being the best explanation. And therefore, I think the rational man can hardly be blamed if he concludes on the basis of the evidence that a divine miracle occurred on that first Easter morning. It's interesting to go even beyond the biblical narrative because one might say there was a vested interest, although there is uh, so much that Bill has already presented that would rise above that criticism. But I find it utterly fascinating as one who studied and taught world religions that to see how those worldviews, particularly religions of that time that were emerging or subsequent to that, that were even antithetical in character to the Christian faith, have responded to this. I think particularly of the Quran, that uh, you know here is a completely different uh, belief in the Islamic worldview, and yet the Quran identifies two of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. Number one, the virgin birth of Christ, and number two, that Christ had the power to raise the dead in two different places in the Quran. That power is given to Christ, the very power to raise the dead. That power, I think, obviously showing that he was Lord over life and over death, and then raised again to life by his own Father, as it was predicted and prophesied in the scriptures. There's a common sense question I had as a younger man studying this, and that was in, in the milieu in which they lived. Had the disciples really wanted to fabricate a claim and now had been beaten, having seen their Messiah crucified, why would they not have fabricated something that was unfalsifiable, i.e., he said he would spiritually rise again? How would the antagonists have proven them false? They would have said, well, he's lying here, the body's here. They say, ah, but he spiritually rose again. What would you say to that kind of a, a doctrine? They went to the hard route and said he bodily rose again so that all the skeptic would had to have done to have completely decimated their case even years after it was first propagated was to find the body. And once that body would have been found, the whole case for Christianity would have been collapsed, as the Apostle Paul himself said, if Christ be not raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. They went the hard route. They did not go the easy way out because they were not trying to fabricate something. Which brings me to one personal application and one historical application. I was at a lunch with Dr. Billy Graham some years ago. There were just a handful of us in the room. And he was narrating some of his most dramatic moments as an evangelist who was in touch with world leaders. And I'll never forget the story he told us. But I remember him saying this. He said, Conrad Adenauer, who became the chancellor in post-war Germany, called Billy Graham over to his room. And he said, Mr. Graham, I have a question for you. Do you really believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? Billy Graham said, as a younger evangelist, I was shocked. I was already nervous to be in the presence of a world statesman and then to have this question thrown at me. And Billy Graham said, I looked at him and said, sir, 
if I did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would have no gospel left to preach. And he said, Conrad Adenauer paused, walked over to the end of the room, looked out of the window, and turned around and he said, Mr. Graham, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. An incredible statement from a world leader. Outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. Put it in these terms. How would we view history if Christ was not who he claimed to be and Christ did not rise from the dead? When you take the philosophies of history, it boils down very simply to this. The existentialist lives engaged for the moment. The traditionalist harks back to the past. If you know the words of the play, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, what keeps us going? How do we manage to eke out a living? Tradition, tradition, tradition. The existentialist with a passion for the now. The traditionalist going back to the past. The utopianist kind of a pie in the sky by and by when I die, looking to the future. So the existentialist for the moment, the traditionalist for the past, the utopianist for the future. Jesus, when he broke bread, after his resurrection with those two disciples on the Emmaus Road who had few minutes earlier had the audacity to look at him not knowing who he was when he asked them why are you so crestfallen and they said to him are you the only one in Israel who does not know what has happened ironically he was the only one in Israel who did know what had happened and there he sat when he broke the bread their eyes were opened and the words would have to have come back to the mind when he broke the bread, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, now you proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he come in the future. He fused every moment of history with meaning, past, present, and future. So the resurrection is not only that which brings meaning personally, but that which gives meaning to history too. And that's why I think it's the peg on which the coat of Christendom ultimately hangs. Given that, that there are many people of other philosophies and religions and worldviews that are good people, and yet they have not placed their exclusive faith in Jesus Christ, how is that fair that those people are not saved? I've always been fascinated by the fact that the Christian faith is the only one that has this question thrown into its face when the fact of the matter is, and listen to me very carefully, please, Every major religion in the world has a point of exclusion. Hinduism, in its pantheistic worldview, with all of its accommodation and ideational comfort with various worldviews, when Shankara was going about lecturing and debating the doctrines that he believed, the monistic doctrine, he would do it on the basis of a debate, challenging any opposing view with the assumption that if I defeat you in this debate and I defeat you in this argument, then my doctrine has triumphed over yours and you will have to submit to mine. People do not realize that Buddhism was born by rejecting two of Hinduism's cardinal doctrines. It rejected the authority of the Vedas and it rejected the caste system. Gautama Buddha did not accept the Vedic teaching as final and he did not accept the caste system. In fact, one of India's early leaders took thousands of Hindus into Buddhism in a march because of the whole idea of the caste system that he too was against. So Buddhism also has its points of exclusion. Islam, as you know very clearly, is an exclusivistic claim. 
to the way to God. So the moment somebody says to you, why is the Christian faith so exclusive? The fact is all truth by definition will be exclusive. And all major religions of the world that I know, that I've studied, are have points of exclusion. The only one that claims theoretically not to exclude any is Baha'ism. But Baha'ism does so while literally perverting all of the religions that I have given to you in their doctrines. Because certainly the law of non-contradiction is held by Islamic people and they do not submit to the fact that it doesn't matter what you believe, that there's a common belief on the fundamental issues of God, man, creation and all of that. There are fundamental points of difference. I make this comment. People often say religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different. May I reverse that for you and tell you that they are fundamentally different at best and at times there may be some superficial similarity. There's a second point in that exclusivistic challenge and it is somehow assumed that the Eastern systems, for example, are far more beneficent and the Christian faith is the single one that sort of condemns and talks about a hell and an eternal lostness and so on, that also betrays a lack of understanding of most of those systems. The whole idea of a reincarnation is a system of paying back. The karmic law is a system of paying back a kind of a retributive aspect as you live the succeeding life in order to pay for the previous one. You might be fascinated to know this. I was interviewed on CNN, uh, CNNI after um, Mother Teresa's death and uh, several questions were asked of me. Very few people were aware of the fact that in the early days when Teresa went to Calcutta to work with the people on the streets of Calcutta, she had a big challenge on her hand. Several fundamental Hindu scholars wondered if she was interfering with the karma of the people on the street, whether they were not paying for their previous life and the wrongs in previous existences. So that the karmic law is operative even in that pantheistic worldview. So number one, all religions have their points of exclusion. Number two, even the idea of a judgment or some way in making a payment as they would call it in those systems for previous lives. But in the Christian faith, there is forgiveness. In one major religion that I shall leave unnamed, you never know if you're ever going to go to heaven. In most of the pantheistic systems, you pay. And when you come to Christ, you know that it has already been paid for the cross. Gives you that forgiveness, not in any cheap way, but make sure that the graphic reality of sin and wrong is truly addressed on the cross. There's a very lovable little poem that I've often quoted in certain audiences. It was written by an elementary school teacher about a little child that had submitted an exam, and she wrote it this way. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet all soiled and blotted, gave him a new one all unspotted, and into his tired heart I cried, do better now, my child. I went to the throne with a trembling heart, the day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all soiled and blotted, gave me a new one all unspotted, and into my tired heart he cried, do better now, my child. 
the glory of the Christian message is not one that scorches and condemns, but offers you forgiveness. And for years and years, as I have proclaimed the gospel, even in some very hostile settings in the land of my birth, when the concept of forgiveness is preached to them, that the cross is as real in its affirmation of what wrong was, but offers grace and offers forgiveness, it comes as a completely shocking idea to most people's sensitivities within those cultures, that there is a God who is pure, a God who is righteous, a God who is just, a God who claims an exclusive way, who still says to you, I'm willing to forgive you and receive you and offer you that eternal life. You see, our problem is really not that there is only one way to God. I am absolutely convinced if God had offered us a thousand ways, we would have wanted a thousand and one. Because at the heart of our problem is not the limitation of ways, but at the limitation of our autonomy. And we want that freedom to either add or subtract to any other offering. So then we come to this final thought. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. I find it most fascinating to who Jesus said these words. Do you know who he said it to? He said it to Thomas, the doubter. Thomas said to him, I don't know, we don't know where you're going, how can we follow you? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. And when he saw the resurrected Christ with the nail marks, and he bent his knee and said, my Lord and my God, do you know where Thomas went to proclaim the exclusive claims of Christ? He went to the land of India, which talked about 330 million deities, and Thomas paid with his life a memorial is six miles away from the very place of my birth in the city of Madras, India, where Thomas paid with his life to present the unique and the exclusive person of Christ. I lay on a hospital bed when I was a teenager. I was 17 years old, finding no meaning in life, not knowing which way to turn to the truth and not knowing which way was right. And as I lay on that hospital bed, having attempted to take my own life, all my friends probably puzzled over this, and my, certainly my family puzzled over it. A Bible was brought to me, and it was in the reading of John chapter 14. Even at that, I could not hold the Bible, for my hand, my body was dehydrated. My mother, in her struggle with reading the King James English, nevertheless read the 14th chapter of John because somebody told her to read it to me. She was not able to process the thinking herself as she read it. And there I read the words of Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. And then Jesus going on to say, because I live, you shall live also. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know him, I urge you not just to look at that exclusive claim, but to look at his birth, his life, his death and resurrection, and to show how he justified that claim and is able to transform your life. May I just make two applications out of that question and the truth that emerge? Jesus, for example, in his claims, demonstrated at least two aspects. There are several I could bring to you. I've done a lot of writing on it. Let me just highlight two. The first thing that Jesus taught that corresponds to life as I've experienced it and as you experienced it is that the human heart is desperately wicked and he called it sin. The human heart is desperately wicked. I mentioned the Holocaust as I saw it a few years ago and watching what Joseph Mengele and his cohorts had done in that room and seeing the pictures of little castrated boys on the wall and watching men and women leave there, particularly teenagers, 
literally sobbing as they walked out of the room. And I stood there alone and a man standing next to me with his arms folded finally looked at me and said, what kind of work do you do, sir? I said, sir, I'm a, I'm a Christian apologist. I travel from place to place defending the Christian faith. I'm also a minister of the gospel. He paused and he looked at me and he said, you've got a lot to think about then, haven't you? I said, I most certainly have. I've never encountered anything like this. And then I said, sir, what kind of work do you do? He said, I'm a judge from the state of New York. I sit on the, on the bench in the state of New York. I'm a judge from there. I looked at him and I said, if you don't mind my saying so, sir, we both have a lot to think about. You see, those who engineered such horrors were the same ones who sat at night entertained by the music of Wagner. The human heart is desperately wicked. All the education in the world is not going to change your heart and mine. Jesus said that it was the heart that was wrong. Viktor Frankl, who was in concentration camps, wrote this. If we present man with a concept of man which is not true, we will corrupt him. When we present him as an automation of reflexes, as a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of heredity and environment, we will then feed the nihilism to which modern man is in any case prone. Listen now, please. I became acquainted with the last stage of corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. I am absolutely convinced, I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry of defense or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Who we are is definitive of how we live. Christ's treatment of the human heart corroborates itself in our experience. But then he didn't leave us there. He talked about how he could change the heart of a human being, how he could bring that change within your heart and mine so that we don't only change what we do, but change what we want to do. Christ called that the new birth. C.S. Lewis, the author, traced his own conversion in these words. Remember, he was an atheist at one time, a pantheist struggling with that sort of worldview. And then he says this, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compelle intrare, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly understood they plumbed the depth of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Anytime you raise the question of exclusivity, look at the cross first, please, and see the invitation. Thank you. I do want to say that it seems to me that this problem posed by religious pluralism, which is the burning issue of our day, is really just a subset of the problem of evil that Ravi talked about earlier.
Namely, it's the claim that it's impossible for God to be all-powerful and all-good, and yet for some people to not receive Christ and to be lost forever. That somehow those are inconsistent. That if there is an all-powerful, all-loving God, then everyone should believe in Christ and be saved. Now, in order to show that those two statements are not inconsistent, all you have to do is show some possible way that God could be all-loving and omnipotent, and yet not everyone would hear the gospel and be saved. This doesn't even need to be a true alternative. It has to be merely possible. And I think that I can offer such a possibility that will show these to be consistent. And I don't know if this is the truth, but I think it's possible. And it would be the following, that God is in his omniscience, knew before he created the world exactly what every person would do in response to God's grace in any set of circumstances that God might place that person in. And he therefore knew who would freely receive Christ and the gospel if that person were to hear it. And therefore God has so providentially ordered the world in his sovereignty that all those who would respond freely to the gospel and be saved if they heard it are born at times and places in history where they do in fact hear it. Well, at this point, Ravi and Dr. Craig responded to questions from the floor. I do want to make two very brief observations. One is I want to register a rather strong disagreement with Viktor Frankl's attribution of uh, causation of the Holocaust to the philosophers. That strikes me as an interesting but rather extraordinary theory. It's surely far more the case that responsibility for the Holocaust rests with the ancient European Christian tradition of anti-Semitism. My second observation, with uh, all due apologies to you, uh, Professor Craig, is that I find the suggestion that those people that happen to be born in circumstances in which they don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel might be people who, were they to have heard it, would have rejected it for all of them to be of that sort, to be not only empirically implausible, but morally repugnant and morally dangerous. The question I want to ask has to do with the claim that both Ravi Zacharias and Professor Craig made, and so it's directed to both of them. Both of you made the claim that there would not be or could not be any objective moral law were it not the case that God existed. You made that claim. I didn't hear a defense of the claim, and I'm curious what that defense would be in the light of the fact that so far as the history of philosophical reflection on that issue goes, I think it's fair to say that the great majority of objectivist theories of morality do not evoke, invoke any deity whatsoever. Let me say something first with respect to my suggested proposal that those who never hear about Christ have been so providentially ordered by God that they would be persons who would not have received Christ and responded to the gospel even if they had heard it. I don't think this is empirically implausible because empirically that would be something that would be impossible to test because it's a counterfactual claim. I mean, how would you disprove something like that? You would go to these people share the gospel, they receive it, and you say, aha, see, they would have received it if they had heard it. Well, no, because now they have heard it. So what I'm 
talking about is persons who never receive the gospel. And I don't think that could be empirically falsified. But in any case, that, as you know, is irrelevant to dealing with the question of whether or not the logical compatibility of God's being omnipotent and all-loving and persons never hearing the gospel being saved is to be demonstrated. As long as this is even possible, it shows that those two statements are logically compatible, that there isn't any inconsistency, so that empirical plausibility doesn't even enter into it. With respect to my claim that if there is no God, then objective moral values do not exist, I guess I could say a couple of things there. First, with respect to moral values, it just seems to me that on an atheistic worldview, there just isn't any reason to think that there would be these sort of non-natural moral properties that exist, because all you've basically got is matter and energy in its different configurations and, and the different properties that arise from that. I just don't see why, in that case, human beings would be the locus of objective moral values as opposed to just guinea pigs or any other form of matter that has evolved into a biologically complex form. And in addition to that, with respect to the moral law, I don't see how this would provide for us moral duties. Even if you said there's some sort of an abstract good, say some sort of a virtue that exists or justice exists as an abstract form or principle, how would that relate to me in terms of moral duties, my oughtness, that I ought to do certain things, that I have a moral obligation to do things? It seems to me that that's much more understandable on the divine law theory that Ravi laid out where we have obligations to obey divine commands. We're under a duty to obey a law. It would be just like we have political obligations to obey laws that have been passed by governments or we have, say, obligations uh, that are societal if we're in a certain community to obey. And similarly, the idea of moral obligation doesn't make sense to me unless there is a sort of moral law giver who commands us to do these things and to whom we therefore have this obligation. So I'm not persuaded that on an atheistic view, you can offer a successful defense of moral duties and rights and wrongs as well as objective moral values. I'm not quite sure where your... Um rationale is in dealing with two of the issues, and maybe you can help clarify it for me. Viktor Frankl's statement is a very logical one. The logical one is that the ideas preceded the actions. I don't think he is saying anything other than that. He is not saying it was purely a militaristic decision. He was saying it was an idea of humanity and the nature of human beings that was prior to the action that resulted. Stalin was once upon a time a seminary student, gave up his belief in God and left seminary and began to, with an iron fist, rule his own people, had a direct bearing, his ideas upon the consequences and so on. So I think Frankl's statement stands on its own. I don't think Frankl is thereby saying that the engineers of that had no blame. I think he said the ideas were prior to the operation that ensued. Secondly, I'm really very curious to see where you would peg your objective moral values outside of God. I'd love for a Hindu and a Muslim and a Buddhist to be sitting here and seeing if they would agree with your version of a transcendent ethic. 
apart from a clearly stated objective moral framework to which a Hindu and a Muslim and a Buddhist would agree, who themselves would say they have a completely different natural law operating within themselves. Gautama Buddha, for example, who was non-theistic, his view of ethics would be radically different to Kant's view of ethics, who was trying to also frame it in a non-transcendent framework. So I would assume that when you say an objective moral value, that it is something that rises above you and is a common point of reference for all of humanity to refer and by which to order their lives. Am I right in assuming that? Uh, well, since I've been asked uh, those questions, I'll be glad to respond very briefly. First of all, uh, it had better not be the case that the criterion here is whether I can get everybody to agree with me because you won't get everybody to agree with you no. either. Um, if you ask me uh, what uh, a purely um, naturalistic basis, what the purely naturalistic basis for an ethics could be, of course I have any number of theories to choose from. I can tell you that my own view is a type of uh, Aristotelian naturalism, if that tells you very much. Um, uh, there are deontic theories uh, that uh, speak directly to the question of obligation. There are theories that say that uh, the, it is reason itself that tells you what you are obliged to do, what you're obligated to do. Both of you, I assume, are at least to a considerable extent quite familiar with those theories. It won't do to settle that issue simply to say that the only theory that seems to satisfy you is one which invokes a deity. One needs some sort of reason to think that such a theory is in fact better. I happen to think that divine command theories are extraordinarily difficult to defend for a variety of reasons. With respect to uh, Viktor Frankl's point... But can I just ask, uh, how, yes. how is that objective? How's what objective? How is your Aristotelian view an objective framework? It is a framework that depends on objective facts like? about the nature of uh, human beings and human life. That's not an objective viewpoint. It's as objective as it possibly could be. There just are objective facts mm -hmm. about that. No, you're arguing, I think you're arguing in a circle. You have assumed the nature is self-explanatory. No, a, a, a Hindu or a Muslim would say to you or a Christian would say to you, no, the human nature issue is not settled. Oh, it may not be settled, and to the extent to which it's not settled, it may not be not entirely. Objective, is it? it may not be entirely known what the objective moral values are. But then uh, Christians haven't settled among themselves what the objective moral values are either. I, I just think my my point still stands. I don't hear you presenting an objective framework. But go ahead with the Frankel comment. Um, there are a couple of just quick points I want to make. Uh, one is that uh, Nietzsche, as you know, was no anti-Semite. Another is that though clearly some of the leaders who perpetrated the Holocaust were themselves not Christians, that isn't entirely the question. The question is whether they could possibly have succeeded had it not been for a climate of anti-Semitism, a very powerful climate of anti-Semitism that existed in Europe. Where did that climate derive from? I agree with you that the ideas come first, and the question is whose ideas were primary motivating factors in the Holocaust. I think you're raising a very sobering issue. I agree with you that there was a climate that lent itself to some of that, but let us not forget that in the study of it, there were many even from a Jewish background who fell in line and assisted 
the process. That's one of the most painful aspects of understanding what all transpired. But that moves me neither here nor there. I think you have to be very careful when you lay at the doorstep what you're talking about a climate. It is like the Indian person in India saying the Christian came from England and uh, robbed India of its own autonomy and became dominant over other people. That was hardly a reflection of what Christ taught. And I would like to point out very, very carefully here that when a person gets involved in this kind of dastardly activity, as mind-boggling as, sir, as it is to you and to me, we need to be very careful to see that it is not the logical outworking of the gospel. It may be the abuse of the gospel. It may be the illogical working of people in the name of political power. But by the same token, millions more have been slaughtered in the name of atheism, which sometimes logically worked out from its first principles that man was nothing more than time plus matter plus chance. In fact, I would even go so far as to suggest, I'm trying to remember the last name of George, uh, the author, it'll come to me, the one who wrote the portage from San Cristobal of A.H. You may have read his book, George Steiner, the portage of, from San Cristobal of A.H., Adolf Hitler, in which his version, and here's a Jewish writer who thinks maybe what Hitler actually had in mind in his final solution was to obliterate the people who symbolized to him the moral law and the moral law giver. So certainly that's a very dramatic statement for him to make. And the last words of Eichmann confirmed what, as he was walking to the gallows and the minister even offered him services, when Peter Malkin, the Jewish Mossad person who helped bring Eichmann from Argentina to trial, Malkin has disclosed the hours of conversation he had with Eichmann. Eichmann's son is today teaching, as you know, at Tübingen University. Not one of them has laid the blame on the Christian worldview for what they did. It was the downward spiraling of power that energized them, and whatever else happens, I come from a part of the world where I often have to deal with these issues. Christendom has a very sad history. I have never run from that. It is one of the saddest things to read, not just in Jewish history, but even in Arab history, you read the struggle they have had with this. But the point that we need to make, and then we'll give someone else a chance here, we'll be glad to stay and talk with you because I think your questions are very pertinent, that we have to be careful that we don't lay at the feet of Christ what a politicized version of Christianity did. And any time the Christian faith becomes politicized, it runs the danger of doing the same thing all over again. So what I think Professor Craig and I are doing here, we're not defending Christendom's history. It is the person of Christ that we want to defend. And whatever happened in the Holocaust was not because of what he said or did or taught. And I think we have to be fair with the teaching on that. And I still stand with Frankel's statement that ideas have consequences. And I still believe that in a secularistic framework, whether one goes to Dewey or one goes to Ayn Rand or one goes to Diderot or one goes to Hume or one goes to Kant, the ability to defend an objective frame of ethics continues to argue in a circle because purpose is always intrinsic to defining evil and good. And if purpose itself is denied in human existence, I don't see how good and evil. Tennyson's nature read in tooth and claw is very definitive of how we have arrived where we are. Okay. 
living in a world where there is a pluralism of religions and faiths and no faiths and saying that I have the truth, I am right and you are wrong, uh, creates social conflict. I'm thinking uh, Christians have, uh, Mr. Zacharias has, has addressed that just a bit, have been guilty of being involved in that conflict. I want to know, first of all, as a Christian, how do you live among competing worldviews in terms of attitude and action? And secondly, the charge that my father-in-law always brings is that if Jesus makes so much difference personally, why does it not make more difference socially in terms of, well, he will point to... uh, different things that the the Christians have done down through the years. And that, for him at least, the social aspect outweighs an intellectual argument for him. I particularly would like to hear from Dr. Zacharias, especially from his background. I think in in a voluntarily pluralistic society, as America is, it is imperative that we recognize our differences and accept one another's differences. It is just part of a society that we have brought here. I have lived in countries that call themselves secular but do not give you the privilege at the same time of believing whatever you do. And even for a very vivid example, even though India is called a secular society, I grew up in my university days and my high school days. The rooms were full of Eastern deities. It didn't bother me. I didn't want them out of there. There was a predominance of that belief in the country. But it is very interesting, I find sometimes now, when many Hindu friends maybe would come over here, and if a Christmas tree is put somewhere in some government building, I've had telephone calls made to me on talk shows that is a symbol of a religion that needs to be removed, while at the same time, I'm living in those lands, the, not just the symbols, but the teachings and the quotations from Scripture. And I accepted that. It was all right. And America being a voluntarily pluralistic society, we need to accept the fact that there are differences in belief. But I do not believe we are called upon to celebrate those different belief systems. And there's a world of a difference between the two. I cannot celebrate a lifestyle that is morally wrong for me. I may give the person the privilege of living that way, but I do not believe that it is imperative for me to celebrate that lifestyle and that choice. The wheels of law and the wheels of history will somehow move and move slowly, and we hope in the second part of your question, what your father-in-law raised, I think there will be an answer. Now, having said that in the social framework, because I was used to living, and we are used to living with different views, here is the fundamental problem. There are two motifs with which we live, egalitarianism and elitism. Egalitarianism meaning equality, elitism meaning a hierarchy or a superiority. I believe in the biblical framework, this is my understanding of it, and I may be wrong, both are present. The egalitarianism is present in people. We are all created, made after the image of God. I cannot despise a person's color. I cannot despise a person's ethnic background. And I love this world of numerous cultures. I've raised my children to love all other cultures, to embrace them. I'm a world traveler. There's an egalitarianism of our fellow human beings. But there is an elitism in ideas in the Bible. It tells me that not all ideas are equally true. Some are false and some are true. Now, in the humanistic framework, we have reversed that. 
in effect what we have now got is an egalitarianism of ideas and an elitism of people there is kind of an elitist group that can control one's thinking now here is a question that i have as a person coming from the east possibly a question that troubles me more on the western campuses than any other question i have studied in cambridge i studied under english philosophers and under indian philosophers i have heard the english philosophers make numerous attacks upon the christian faith numerous vilifying attacks while you're sitting in the classroom often tendentious often unsubstantiated never heard one western professor ever make a comment negatively on hinduism or buddhism or islam and i have to ask the question why i'm not saying any of it is justified i'm just asking why one is singled out i never heard my professors make any comment to the same degree of any other this i don't think one ought to make that even here when we are asked questions i try to be very careful and only deal with issues of fact as they are different now here i think is a way to solve the dilemma why cannot the christian belief as it is biblically authentic be given free access in our universities also and be taught rather than be vilified and attacked i know professors of philosophy at the university of toronto who open their lectures by saying if any one of you is a christian here i'm going to bash it out of you before this class over at a phd student phone and ask me how to even handle this courses at princeton are doing the same thing if that's what academia allows all right why does not academic fairness then allow also for a presentation of the authentic christian faith rather than a caricature of it the last issue on the social frame that is a great struggle to see why it is that individual lives claim to be changed while society itself does not change but history tells the other side of the story too in 18th century england while the french revolution was storming france even winston churchill and the secular historian lecky made the comment that had it not been for the wesleyan and the whitfield revivals chances are england too would have been destroyed by a revolution at that point and the holy spirit has a restraining hand i strongly suspect if you pull away any christian world view from america i think your father in law will see what the difference will be when that sort of a world view is completely gone his point is still well taken but where do i begin i can't begin by going to the supreme court and changing laws the pluralistic society I begin by living the Christian life in my home by honoring my commitment to my wife by being faithful as a father and pouring my life into those that God has entrusted me with and from that by the logical flow society can change and then the more radical issues can be dealt with and one way I think that we are showing in that direction is that we can discuss in these forums without hopefully venting hostility one to another but giving a chance to hear in a reasonable setting where our thinking is Uh, we're going to take one last question from this gentleman here on the left. My question is for Dr. Craig. Um, and it concerns the moral objectivity that we've been talking about and discussing. Um, is it your view that moral law is decreed by God, um, that is, that it is decreed by God by his fiat, as Bertrand Russell said, and that from that we can assume that God is neither moral or immoral, that he is rather amoral, neither good or evil? Um, or is it your view that... a moral law exists independently of god and that he acts as a moral and good agent within that framework my view would be to split the horns of that dilemma 
and affirm neither of those alternatives, both of which I think have obvious difficulties. I would hold to uh, what Thomas Morris has called Anselmian theism, that is to say, after the pattern of what St. Anselm argued, and that is that what Plato called the good, the locus and the source of value, is the very nature of God himself, so that the divine commands, which are our moral duties, flow necessarily out of the moral nature of God himself. Therefore, they are neither something above God, to which God is subservient, nor are they arbitrarily willed by God capriciously, but rather they're necessary expressions of God's own nature. He is by nature just, loving, kind, virtuous, and so forth, all the other sorts of moral qualities that, he, that we could think of, and that these commands then become for us our moral duties. Now, if you were to say, but why think that God is the locus of value, that he himself is the good? Well, I think it would flow from the very concept of God. It would be a metaphysical necessity. That is to say, God, by definition, is a being worthy of worship, and only a being which is absolute goodness is worthy of being worshipped. Anything that was merely finite in value or only partially good or participated in goodness but was not the locus and absolute embodiment of goodness itself could not be something that could merit worship in all that that word connotes. And therefore I think that we have good and coherent grounds for grounding our system of ethics in God. And if you deny the existence of God, then it seems to me that you're basically left with a closed system in which it's very, very difficult to see how there would be moral values which wouldn't be transcultural in their binding force on us rather than just the socio-cultural byproducts of human development. It, it's very hard for me to see how you can have an objective ethic without a transcendent ground for it. So that would be the way I would answer your question. If you're interested in reading more, look at Thomas Morris's very fine book called Anselmian Explorations in which he deals with some of these questions in a couple of chapters of the book. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.